My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster Church. Today's forum is co-sponsored by General Mills. In 1937, a 25-year-old dining car waiter and porter on the North Coast Limited bought a camera in a Seattle pawn shop and fell off a pier taking his first pictures of seagulls. He returned to Minneapolis where the owner of a Kodak camera shop told him his pictures were very, very good and that if he took more of them, Kodak might be interested in displaying his work. From that day forward, Gordon Park's camera has recorded the best and the worst in us, in Life magazine, in books, in television documentaries, and in film. Whether in preserving the beauty of a leaf photographed against the background of one of his own watercolors in arias of silence, in the libretto and musical score of the ballet, ballet Martin, written to memorialize and celebrate the life of Dr. King, in his poetry and the compelling prose of his three autobiographies, in his compassion for a dying Brazilian boy named Flavio, or in his photographs of Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers, and Malcolm X, or his most famous photo, Black American Gothic, depicting the struggle to transcend the scourge of racism. Gordon Park's eye for human dignity, the dignity of ordinary people, and the beauty of everyday life is a truly extraordinary gift, the gift of an artist. Awarded the first Julius Rosenwald Fellowship in Photography, today's speaker is the recipient of 29 honorary doctorates, the Springarn Medal of the NAACP, and an Emmy Award for his Diary of a Harlem Family. Now at age 83, almost 84, he will be 84 next month, Mr. Parks said in a recent interview, I work day and night. Time is not passing. Time is going to be here. You are passing. You have to do as much as you can. His accomplishments are staggering, and his influence on the American conscience will be recorded by history. His topic today is a life of art, a retrospective on his life. It is a great privilege, sir, to welcome you home here to the Twin Cities, where the power of your camera was first recognized. Would you please welcome back to Minnesota? and to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mr. Gordon Parks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that marvelous introduction, Gordon. I remain creative because I have three ex-wives and I have to stay creative. <laughs> you know how that is, young. I'm very happy to be back home. And uh, I remember these cold winters here when I was a kid here. And uh, I tell everybody all over the world, uh, 
There's no warmer place, but a no colder place in Minnesota. Because <laughs> I have a lot of friends here and a lot of my family back here. Uh, Gordon and I talked a little bit about certain things that happened and that he's read about and knows about and reminded me of things that my mother and father that I'd forgotten. Not had really forgotten, but hadn't thought about it for a long time. And uh, I, I was just telling him that I just, it would be here for hours if I went on about the things that happened back in Kansas where I was born in a little prairie town called Fort Scott. And uh, I suffered uh, an awful lot of, of prejudice, discrimination there, but I also enjoyed a tremendous love. And Gordon and I were talking this morning about what, what has happened to the kids from the urban areas. And I was saying that I think that the families lost touch. Uh, they, everybody wasn't fortunate to have mothers and, and, a, and a father like I had, 14 brothers and sisters who loved me, gave me everything I wanted. But I, we were poor, but we had a richness in, in terms of love. And that's when I needed it most, that's what pulled me through. And I think that's the problem with our families now in the urban areas where our kids are suffering violence and drugs and so forth and so on. They've lost touch with the family. And I dread to think of what's going to happen to their kids if this keeps up. So I'm very happy. In retrospect, I look, I look back and know that at least three of my best friends <clears throat> in Kansas, young friends were died from violence of one sort or another, and I knew that there had had to be a better way, and my parents knew that there must be a better way for me. Uh, so eventually, I chose my art, and I'm very happy that I chose my art, and I think I was influenced by the fact that my mother wanted me to be somebody and my father wanted me to be somebody. And at least I wanted to be somebody and my brothers and sisters wanted me to be somebody. So I had a lot of going for me. However, when my mother died when I was 14, uh, I, was a, I wasn't a likely candidate for success because my family broke up. I was shipped off to Minnesota by, by my father at my mother's request. And I don't know what my dad thought was going to happen to me, but he went on to kiss me goodbye and pat me on the head and went, my, <clears throat> my mother's, the flowers on my mother's grave were not yet wilted when I was on that train back up to St. Paul. Uh, I wrote a poem recently, I, I thought I would bring along read about that time which reflects my feelings about my dad. At two, two roads past my father's house, they went everywhere with towels unfixed on unmarked distances, paved with roses and thorns. He said a few things when I was back to go. He said, the feel of your feet will reconcile the differences of which road you take. There will be signposts along the way giving out devious directions, and it's your right to question them, but don't ignore them. Each of them is meant for something.
you will find that summer grass underfoot will be kinder to your touch than autumnal weeds. Yet, during the winter storms, there will be the taller stalks leaning above the snow that will catch your eye, and you will learn that all the same things are really not the same, that you must select your friends with the same care I gave to choosing your mother, or maybe the wood to build the fences. Avoid those things that die easily, and get your own soul ready to die well. Don't get gray by yourself, and don't be surprised when, as you grow older, you begin to pray more and worry less. Remember most that everything I have told you might very well amount to everything, or perhaps nothing. But be most thankful, son, if in autumn you can still manage a smile. That was my dad. <laughs> Gordon told you how I, I uh, fell in the, sea, in the Puget Sound photographing those seagulls with my first camera. It cost me $7.50. Uh, but it had a great name. It was called the Voigtlander Brilliant. Terrible camera. But what a wonderful name to toss around. What kind of camera to use? A Voigtlander Brilliant. <laughs> uh, I came back to Minnesota. and. I never will forget when I, for my first roll of the film, which I didn't even know how to take out of the camera, hardly, uh, Eastman Kodak looked at my stuff and uh, said, uh, you, this, is it, asked me first, is this your, your first roll of the film? I said, yes. They said, you really, are you sure? I said, yes. They said, well, it's good. I said, well, thank you. That if you keep it up, we will give you a show. I said, well, thank you, sir. Well, of course, I thought he was lying to me, but I kept it up. And uh, sure enough, in six months, they gave me a show at the Eastman Kodak in front of the windows. I don't know whether the store is still here or not. I think it was on Fifth Street. Very impressive store. Uh, but then I got pretty cocky uh, after that. And I, one day, walking on uh, St. Peter, I think it is, Street, and uh, I looked up and I see this famous store, Frank Murphy's, very beautiful store, strictly for rich women. And I walked in. I don't know why. I can't tell you why I walked in there, even today. But I walked in and asked for Frank Murphy. <laughs> and Frank Murphy appeared uh, in a well-dressed, well-cut gray flannel suit and said, yes, what can I do for you? And he looked like he was seven feet tall at that time. And I said, I began to feel like a little bug the way he looked at me, and I said, well, I want to do fashions for you. He said, well, we do our fashions in London and Paris and New York, and I got smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> well, Frank had just about kicked me out of the door when Madeline, his wife, who looked to be 10 feet tall, said, Frank, what does the young man want? Frank said, oh, he wants to shoot fashions. But that time, Frank had me out the door. She said, well, Frank, how do you know he can't shoot fashions? Frank groaned. And she said, come here, young man. Sit down. She put me down in one of the big plush chairs. 
Can you shoot fashions? I lied and said, yes, ma'am. She said, have you got any work with you? I said, no, ma'am. Frank groaned. Hmm. She says, well, I'm going to give you a chance. You come back here tomorrow evening after the store closes, and I'm going to have some models here for you. Now, how many will you want? I said, oh, three. <laughs> what kind of clothes do you want? Oh, fash uh, high, high fashion. Oh, yeah. Uh, I see. Mm -hmm. All right. You come back here tomorrow. It'll be here about 6.30. Yes, ma'am. I'll be here. Well, I rushed to, uh, over here to Minneapolis. And Harvey Goldstein, who had a little photographic store on the campus University of Minnesota, he lent me money. He lent me advice. He lent me everything. He said, uh, I told him, I said, Harvey, I'm going to shoot fashions for Frank Murphy's. He says, you what? I said, I'm going to shoot fashions for Frank Murphy. He said, you don't have a camera, you don't have film, you don't have lights, and you can't shoot fashions. I said, you're going to fix all that up in one day, Harvey. You're going to give me the film, you're going to give me the lights, and, uh, uh, and, and you're going to take me over there, and you're going to show me how to shoot fashions. He said, I don't know a thing about shooting fashions. You know, I said, all right, just take me over there. So sure enough, Harvey dropped me off the next day with the lights and everything. I went in, the models were there. Frank was there, still groaning. And I, you know, I did all right. There was Madeline was impressed. Frank was impressed. Even I was impressed. <laughs> Until about 12 o'clock at night, I developed a film, and everything was double exposed, with the exception of one picture. Well, I just decided to be honest with Mrs. Murphy. She'd done me a favor. And I went back and I told her the truth. This is what happened. But meanwhile, I told Harvey that he had to make me a big 16 by 20 print to take back so I could put it on the easel in front of the stores when Madeline and Frank walked in the next morning. So when she arrived there, the picture was on the easel out in front of the store, the one picture. She looked at it and said, oh my God, Gordon, where are the rest of them? <laughs> so beautiful, she said. I said, oh, thank you, Miss Murray, thank you, thank you. I know they have a double exposed, you know. What's the double exposure? I told her. And, and so Frank said, ah, I told her. So then she says, well, if, the, if, if they all been this, this good, I said, oh, that's the worst one of all. <laughs> so she said, all right, we'll do them over. And now this time, don't double expose, and I didn't. And uh, Marva Lewis came to town, Joe Lewis's wife, saw the fashions in Murphy's, and encouraged me to go to Chicago, and that, when I got the Rosenwald Fellowship after I was there a while, that uh, Pastor told you about. And then I was, had the good fortune of being selected to work off my Rosenwald Fellowship at the Farm Security Administration in Washington, D.C where the most famous of all uh, legendary documentary photographers had gathered under Roy Stryker and under Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, and actually, the pictures of the FSA were an indictment of America because it showed the people who were being thrown off their, their land, 
the farmers who were losing their, their titles to the land, people in baby buggies pushing their kids along the highway. And actually, it was an indictment against the government itself. Uh, there was a group of great photographers there, uh, Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang, John Vachon, who used to live in St. Paul, Minnesota here, uh, uh, Russell Lee, well, I, uh, Arthur Rothstein, I could go on and on, Wilcock Post, they're great. And I was very fortunate in as much as I had selected uh, to be there. When I was running on that train called the 400, I don't know whether it's still running between Chicago and St. Paul, I, I ran into uh, a photographer on the train. I saw his bag, had Life magazine on it, his name was, and it had Kappa on it. So that's the famous Bob Kappa, the famous war photographer. So I wanted to speak to him, but he was, uh, he'd had a few drinks. And he was, uh, uh, got in the car and went fast asleep. But when he woke up in Chicago, I said, uh, uh, Mr. Kappa, you, I think you're from Life Magazine? He said, yes. I said, well, uh, save me a locker. I'm going to be down there. He says, what are you talking about? I said, just save me a locker. You know? He said, OK, you got a camera? I said, yeah. Had my Voigtlander brilliant. So he flipped me a silver dollar and said, I'll save you a locker. Well, many years later, after I did finally make Life magazine and I was been assigned to Paris, Bob and I were walking down the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And I said, thank you, Bob, for saving me for that locker. He looked at me and said, you crazy? I said, no, what are you talking about? What locker? I said, don't you remember years ago when I, the, 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 the porter on the railway asked you to save him a locker in Life that's you? I said, that's me. <laughs> and <coughs> I never will forget Bob for that. Uh, he said, I saved you that locker. I said, yeah, I took advantage of it, too. But it's, it's strange uh, the way art comes about in your work. I didn't necessarily discover a lot of things in art. Art discovered me. And I was telling Gordon this morning, there was no genius attached to what I've done. I was trying to survive. I was trying to live out my wishes, my mother's and father's wishes. Uh, when, my brother, when I came to Minnesota, my brother-in-law kicked me out in 35 degrees below zero weather. I had never seen him before. He didn't like children. And I had to become a man overnight. Because you know, when 35 degrees below zero hits, it's cold. And uh, I had to survive some way, and I did everything I could to survive. I you know, played piano in a house of ill repute, is that what they call them? <laughs> uh, I played professional basketball with my good friend Jimmy Griffin, who's sitting over here. Uh, I did everything uh, you know, to survive. Meanwhile, accumulating a feeling for art. I think art sort of slipped upon me accidentally in Chicago when I was laying over. I had nothing else to do, so I went into the Art Institute to warm, to get to stay warm. And I discovered the masters there for the first time. I saw the great painters of the world. And so I just sort of took it in to myself. And it became a part of, of my work. Uh, later on, 
went on to Life magazine. Now, first, before that, I went to Harvard's Bazaar to apply for a job. Alexander Brodovich, who was the, the, the important art director of New York City, looked at my work and said as much, well, I love it, but we've got a problem. This is a Hearst organization, and we do not hire black people for anything. Thank you. Took my work and walked out, went to Vogue magazine. Alexander Lieberman, who was the art director of Vogue, looked at my work and said, well, I said, well, here it comes again. <laughs> he said, uh, we never tried it, but this time we're going to try it. And I worked for Vogue for about five or six years and still do things for Vogue uh, every now and then. But that shows you different people. You know, you can have all the artistic leanings and everything in the world, but if you don't have a Madeline Murphy or, or Alexander Lieberman or somebody, a Harvey Goldstein or someone like that to back you up, it's going to be very difficult for you. Uh, and so I appreciate a Madeline Murphy back here reaching out to me. I asked her years later, and I had done my first big thing for, for Vogue magazine. I never will forget it. I'd done a beautiful, magnificent spread, uh, seven pages for Vogue. And I got a cable from Madeline. Dear Gordon, I see you're not double exposing. Right on, baby, stay in there. <laughs> well, she came to New York, and she said, call me, and said, I want to take you to the Hotel Plaza for dinner. I want to celebrate. I said, fine. So we get to the, we're having dinner at the plaza. And I said, Madeline, you've got to tell me something. I've been thinking all these years, you know, past, how you, when Frank had kicked me out of the store that day, you saved me, you pulled me back in, and you gave me my big first break. I said, why did you do that? You didn't, you didn't know me. I was just a poor little colored guy, <laughs> ragged, and no camera. She said, I don't know, Gordon. She said, I think I was just mad as hell at Frank that day. <laughs> I said, thank God you were mad at Frank, Madeline. <laughs> you know, but that place, as you may know, became uh, a sort of a, a marvelous place for me on on Christmas was Madeline would decorate her windows with some of my books and so forth. And just before I came into the chapel here, I got a, a card from uh, uh, Shannon, Madeline's daughter. And I had written poetry for Frank when he died and so forth, and they would put that in the window. So it, it became a mecca, in a sense, for our, our friendship. and. As things happened down the line, like later on, I went to Life magazine. That was a blessing for me. I was afraid to walk into Life magazine and ask for an appointment, because it's about a million other photographers who want to do the same thing. And I was black. So my, my chances were nil. So I devised a, a little trick. I thought of Matt Murphy's again. I walked into Life magazine, Rockefeller Plaza, and I went to the front door. I said, which, which floor is, is, is the editorial floor on? Very important, Life, you know. He said, oh, it's on the 31st floor. I said, well, thank you. I got on the elevator and got off. A little girl running with a bunch of papers in her arms. I said, where's Wilson Hicks's office? He was a picture editor, and he was the toughest picture editor Life ever had. She said, 
Mr. Mr. Hicks is right down the end of the hall. I walked down there, and I had my pictures with me. I walked into his office, and Wilson was, had a cigar in his mouth. His glasses were up. I walked in. He says, hello. I said, hello. He said, uh, what the hell are you doing in here? <laughs> I said, I just walked in. He said, well, just walk out. I said, you're going to look at a few pictures, just, you don't mind, just look at one or two of my pictures, you know. Who are you? I told him. I said, well, here, just look at it. He looked at one, started, then he looked at another one. Then he looked at another one. Then he called in Sally Kirkland, the fashion editor, because I had some stuff there from Vogue. And he also called in a documentary editor, John Dillick. He said, look at this guy's work. What do you think? John says, I love it. Sally says, oh, Wilson, it's, it's marvelous. We don't have a fashion photographer on the staff. Let's, uh, let, let's get him to do something. Well, I was feeling pretty good. So Wilson says, well, what do you want to do? I said, uh, well, uh, you know, again, oh, I want to do the Harlem Gang story. Well, it was, you know, I hadn't thought of it five seconds before, but <laughs> I wanted to excite Wilson, you know, give him something. He said, we did that last year. We tried it. And one of the boys turned out to be a minister's son, and we were sued for $10 million, and we had to pay five of it. I said, well, I can do it. I had no idea that I could, but he said, you can do it? I said, yeah. So he said, well, I'll give you $500. I said, $500? You know, that won't get me past the first week. He said, that's all I can give you. So Dilly says, take it, Gordon. Just take it. I said, why? He said, just take it. Just like that. And so Sally was gushing over the fashion pictures. She says, I'm going to Paris to do the collection. Maybe I can take him to Paris. I said, Paris, my God, you know, I could hardly spell the name. Uh, then uh, when we got outside, I said, well, to Dilly, I said, uh, why did you advise me to take $500? He says, because you will be on an unlimited expense account which immediately made me the wealthiest photographer on Life magazine. But anyway, I did the story, it was successful. Sally did take me to Paris. Uh, while I was in Paris, uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman saw my story uh, that I had done on the gangs, and she was on Stromboli with uh, Roberta Rossellini, and they were having the great love affair of their lives. Wilson cabled me in Paris to go on down to Stromboli and do that story. And because Ingrid had requested that I come, since Roberta had kicked all the newsmen off the island, I went. And of course, I realized I was there to do the same thing that every photographer who was kicked off the island was doing. I was there to get a picture of Ingrid Ber Bergman and Rossellini embracing. That was the million dollar picture. But she somehow or another trusted the fact that I would do it in the right way. And when I arrived, uh, Maria Sermolino and I arrived in a boat. Rossellini was kicking the last of the newsmen off the island. And he was calling her a wife stealer. And uh, uh, he was in his uh, pants out trying to hit the guy in the boat. And he turns to me and he says, who are you? I said, I'm Gordon Parks. You know. <laughs> Who's Gordon Parks? I don't know. Just Ingrid said, he's all right, Robert. He's all right. All right. So that settled in. But uh, I uh, took Ingrid around the island, around Stromboli Island, and I photographed her. But I stayed out of Robert's way as much as possible until he began to accept me. And uh, one day, I had a chance to get this 
one picture that everybody had been wanting. It was the end of the day. The crew had gone home for the weekend. I was reloading my camera. I came out of the closet, and there was Ingrid and Roberta in a big room embracing me. It was, it was an embrace that said, my God, the whole world is against us. It was a synthetic embrace. And I said, there it is. I reached for my 35-millimeter camera, and I thought, well, now is not the time for betrayal. She trusted me, so I put the camera back in my pocket. Sunday morning, I got a knock on the door. It was Ingrid Bergman. Gordon? Yes. Uh, Roberta and I are going for a walk on the beach. Would you like to come along? I said, oh, I'd love that. She said, well, bring your camera. We want some pictures of ourselves. So I got all I wanted to do. So Ingrid and I turned out to be great friends. I was glad that I didn't betray Ingrid. Uh, I've always tried to use a, a, a sense of principle in my work, even when I have assigned to do poverty, which I did a lot for life on uh, poverty-stricken people, a little boy in Brazil, Flavio, who I found dying in the favela up above Rio de Janeiro, the Fontenelle family in Harlem, which I did later. Uh, I would go live with those families sometimes for a week without taking a camera in, because I wanted the boys and the girls to know me in the family. and. Uh, so that they would trust me. Then I could get just about anything I wanted to get. Uh, Flavio, I found, as I say, in the favela above Rio, in the, one of the worst districts that you can imagine on the mountainside. It was called Catacumba, which in Portuguese means death. And it was death for a lot of the children, especially who lived up that way. There were thousands and thousands of people in shacks on this. I had been sent there to do a story on poverty by life and interviewed fathers and things of that sort who could give me some lead about their religion and their politics and so forth. But I was sitting under a jacaranda tree and I saw this kid come up, beautiful child, 12 years old, boy, with a tin of water on his head, dirty uh, shorts, his feet, his legs looked as though they'd been screwed into his feet, he was so thin. But he gave me a beautiful smile and I smiled back. And Jose Gallo, who was my interpreter, said, said, that's a beautiful kid. I said, yeah. I said, I want to follow him. I said, that's poverty. And he said, okay. We followed him. And I, I stayed with Flavio. Well, he, he had seven brothers, seven, eight, eight brothers and sisters. And I stayed with Flavio uh, for about a month after cabling life and telling the kind of story I wanted to do. And I said, well, Sounded like a marvelous story. Go ahead, do it. Uh, the day I told Flavio goodbye, and it, it, first let me say that it's difficult when you're doing a story on poverty to not bring them food or clothing or something because you know you can't do it. They're starving to death, and you're now and then eating their food, but you're just waiting for the moment when you can finish your story, and then you can bring in the food, and you can bring in the money, and you can do all the things you want. But you kill your story if you do it before. So that was the problem of waiting. But when I told Flavio goodbye, finally, uh, he 
he, he had taught me some bad words in Portuguese, and I taught him some English. Uh, but he came down to the bottom of the mountain. He says, Gordon, you come back to see Flavio one day? I said, yes, I do, but I was lying. I knew I would never go back there. I never wanted to see such poverty again. And I said, I will be back, Flavio. But when I went back to America, American people sent me back. Because when the story was published, thousands and thousands of dollars came in. In less than three weeks, over $30,000 had come to me telling me, you must go back and pick that boy up. A Jewish clinic in Denver, Colorado said, you bring him to us, we will save his life. He had bronchial asthma, he had, we thought, tuberculosis, uh, uh, he had several diseases. But we, uh, we, we, I went back and uh, little Baptista, who was his youngest brother, saw me at the bottom of the favela the first day I got back, and he started to run across the street to meet me. He said, Gordon, Gordon. And I said, stop, Batista, but he didn't stop quickly enough. The next thing I know, a car hit him, and he was underneath the car. And the car drug him for about three or four yards. So I rushed out, picked him up. I assumed he was going to be dead, but uh, he had blood coming out of his mouth and out of his ears. And his mother, who was washing clothes, saw him and started, <coughs> started screaming and running to the street. And of course, in Brazil, uh, a place that you have, the driver who, after you hit somebody, has a right to flee the place for his life, but as long as he reports it to the police within 12 hours. Well, the favelados gathered around this car in less than three or four minutes, and this guy was about to meet his death and I picked up little Batista and his mother Nair, and I said, get in the car, get in the car, Nair. And I told him, the driver, to open up your door, open up your door, because he had locked it because he was afraid he was going to be killed, and there were people in front of his car. So when I put Batista in the car, off we went, and he was glad to get out, the driver was. But in any case, I brought Flavio to America, the, the Denver Clinic saved his life. Flavio went back after two years. He uh, bought a home of his own, he got married, he had three children, he named one Gordon. <laughs> and he's a marvelous, marvelous. He taught more about, about human, human kindness and human courage than anybody I've ever met in my life. He was a 12-year-old lad, you know. The, I got recently, you might have seen it in Life magazine recently, that they go back to visit Flavio now. Flavio is uh, back living in his parents' house. There's 16 kids living in there. Uh, he's divorced his wife and is no longer with his children, but uh, he still remembers the good Americans who helped him. He wants still to come back here. I did a similar story for a family uh, uh, in Harlem. <clears throat> called the Fontanelles. It's just about exactly the same amount of children. The story didn't turn out that well. I got them a house, too, with money that people sent. I bought them a little home uh, just outside of, in the suburbs. The father came home uh, celebrating his, uh, one night, smoking a cigarette, dropped it uh, on the couch. The house burned down. He died, 
in the fire. Little Kenneth, one of my favorites, he died in the fire. And Mrs. Fontenelle says, move me back to Harlem. And I said, well, you own that place. She says, I don't want it. Just move me back to Harlem. Well, just recently, Miss Fontenelle died. There's one kid she had faith in. That was little uh, Robert. And she said, he's going to make it out of all the kids. And sure enough, little Robert is making it. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He's married. He also has a kid named Gordon. <laughs> I got Gordons all over the place. And uh, I buy him. Uh, he wants to be a composer, and I buy him photograph photographic equipment. He also wants to be, do some photography. And Robert's going to make it. And he remembers that his mother wanted so much for him to make it. The mother just died. Three girls died from AIDS. One girl died from an overdose. Another boy died in just about two months ago somewhere out in Wisconsin. They don't know what happened to him. So the only one left now is little Robert. He's just about the only one left. So you see, it doesn't always turn out the way you, you hoped it would. Sometimes you feel as though, well, maybe I was playing God. Maybe I shouldn't. But if I saw a family like that, I would help them again, uh, no matter what the consequences were. I, I would feel inclined to help them. The other work that I did for Life magazine was during the black militancy period. Uh, I didn't enjoy it, but I learned an awful lot. I did a lot with the Panthers, the Muslims, Stokely Carmichael, and the whole group of young militants, Cleaver and the rest of them. I. Life, the magazine, wouldn't send me out to do a, the black militancy for about two years. They tried it without me because I felt that they felt, and they had good reason to, I expect, that I would not be objective since I was a black man. They didn't try me. Yet, still, the Panthers and the Muslims and Stoker and the rest had feelings that perhaps since I worked for the uh, the, the white empire, that they couldn't trust me either. But I was in a position where both of them wanted me and both of them needed me. So life finally said, after two years of trying without me, could you penetrate the black Muslims? I said, I don't know. With a white photographer, with a white writer. I said, no, absolutely not. Could you do it with a black writer? I said, I don't know whether I can do it myself. They may not even trust me. You know, I work for you, after all. <laughs> they said, uh, well, just try. Well, um, I went up to Harlem that same afternoon, and Malcolm X was cussing out a group of white cops <laughs> and shaking his fist and, and, and pointing his finger. And I said, well, I decided Malcolm wasn't going to live long. Uh, I, I went up to him and introduced myself, and he said, Yes, uh, I know. I've heard of you. I said, well, thank you. I said, I want to do a story on the Muslims. He said, well, a lot of people do. I said, well, I, I really want to do it for life. He said, well, I can't give you permission. Elijah Muhammad would have to do that, and he's out in Arizona. I said, would you fly out there with me? He said, yes. We flew to Arizona, and Elijah Muhammad met us in his living room, and he said, the first thing he said to me was, young man, why are you working for the white devil? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I talked about the Trojan horse getting inside. He said, I don't buy that. 
In less than 10 minutes, Malcolm X was in the car and with me in the car, and we were headed back toward the airport. I said, uh, well, that didn't go very well. Malcolm said, I think he likes you. I said, well, he had a damn poor way of showing it. He said, I think he'll invite you back. Uh, I said, no, he won't. And Malcolm said, we'll see. I said, okay, we'll see. Well, sure enough, Elijah Muhammad invited me back. In less than a week, I flew back out there, and he said, uh, well, young man, I have an offer to make to you. I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to do a book on the, the black Muslims and a film, and I will give you a half million dollars cash. I said, well, I'm, I'm very flattered, Mr. Muhammad, but I'm afraid that if I accepted it, that you would be an influence uh, on me or try to influence me. He said, well, you can bet your life if I give you half a million dollars, I'm going to try to influence you. <laughs> I said, well, for that reason, I can't do it. So Malcolm and I were headed toward the car again. But then he hailed us at the car. He said, look, I like the fact that you just turned down a half a million dollars. And I'm going to let you go through the world of Islam. And Brother Malcolm X is going to be your guide. If we like what you do, I'm going to send you a big box of cigars. If we don't like what you do, I'll be out to visit you. <laughs> well, that's the way it went. Obviously, he liked it. Then I got in with the Panthers, and uh, after that story, uh, uh, Oakley, Cleaver, and went to Algiers to see Cleaver and interview him. And, and I rode with the Panthers, and uh, it was a dangerous life, but an interesting life. I, I, one night, I remember riding with the Panthers, and the young man, who was a Marxist, uh, upbraided me about my book, A Choice of Weapons. He said, why did it, would, would you write that book today, the same way you wrote it then, about your weapons that you chose to fight uh, discrimination and poverty and so forth, and bigotry? I said, Yes, I write it the same way today. He said, with those honkies back there following us, the cops were following us, lights on us, it was storming. I said, well, look, I said, you have a 45 automatic on your lap, and I have a 35 millimeter on my lap, camera, and I think my instrument is just as powerful as yours if it's used right. So don't give me that way in church, you know. <laughs> uh, he, he looked at me and scowled, and, uh, Cox, one of the drivers, looked back, and sure enough, the young man was killed two weeks later in an ambush in Los Angeles. Which, and my story got out in Life magazine, and the Panthers had a chance to say what they wanted said. And uh, Life magazine was happy with my coverage of the black militancy because I insisted that I write, that I trusted nobody to write my pieces but myself. And they allowed me to do that, so everybody was very happy uh, about that. Now, uh, today I still hear from some of the uh, militants, Stokely Carmichael, some of them from different parts of Africa and different uh, parts of the world. And I'm very happy about <coughs> what I did uh, during that period. Now, the writing, some people ask about the writing, why do you do so many things? Well, the writing was accidental. When I was working in Life magazine, Carl Maidans was a very good writer himself, 
and a fine photographer. And I said, look, we talk about your, your, your stay in Kansas as a kid. You got a novel there. Why don't you write about it? I said, Carl, I can't write a novel. He said, did you ever try? I said, no. He said, well, go home this weekend and start it. <laughs> so I left, and I went home that weekend. And I wrote seven triple space pages. And up the top, I put the learning tree. Well, and I took it to Carl on the following Monday, and I showed it to him. And he said, do uh, you mind if I see it? show this to someone? And I said, go ahead. And two days later, a gentleman called me and said, look, my name is Evan Thomas, and uh, I would like very much to have lunch with you. I said, well, fine. I said, who are you? He said, uh, I'm uh, a friend of Carl Maidan's. I said, fine, that's good enough for me. So I said, Carl, I just got a call from a guy named Evan Thomas. He wants to take me to lunch. He said, you know who that is? I said, no. He said, that's the executive vice president of Harper and Row Publishing. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, I said, you better go to lunch with me. He said, yeah, I better go to lunch with you. <laughs> so we got there, and we're taking off our wraps. Mr. Thomas met us at this wrap stand, and he, he said, now, Mr. Parks, we want your novel. Novel? Yes. He said, we can only offer you $5,000 for it because you've never written anything before, and so, you know, we have, we're taking our chances. Carl's mouth fell open, my eyes bugged. I said, well, sir, I, I, I don't know what to say to that, but, well, come on back, come on back to the table. And halfway back, he said, we can offer you 7500 <laughs> I said, but Mr. Tom, he said, no, come on back, come on back, sit down. When he got back to, to the table, he said, now look, $15,000 is as much as we can offer you. That's it. We don't have any more money. I said, well, I, I may not be able to write another decent word, but since you offered me all this money, I'm damn well going to try. So that's how the learning tree got started. It was published the following year. It, it's now until today. That was 1962, and it's still going uh, strong. It's now in the 60th printing. And from that, other things happened. Just to show you that I had been not planted, you know. The dear Lord planned it all for me. I got a call from John Cassavetes, a famous actor, and he said, I just got through reading The Learning Tree, Gordon. Gotta make a film of it. I said, John, that'd be wonderful. I'd love to see a film made of it. He said, well, you got to make the film. You have to direct it. I said, there are no black directors in Hollywood. You know they're not gonna be any of that. He said, can you get out here the day after tomorrow? I said, yeah, I can come out. He said, all right, come to Warner Brothers Studio. He said, ask for Kenny Hyman. His father, Elliot, owns the studio. Kenny and I are not speaking, but I'll be there to, to, to meet you. I said, all right. When I arrived, uh, Kenny and John had their backs to one another. And John Cassavetes said, this is Gordon Parks, Kenny Hyman, and he left. Kenny Hyman turns to me, said, well, I just got to reading The Learning Tree and A Choice of Weapons. Which one would you like to do first? I looked at him and I said, no, don't kid me. I came all the way from New York out here. You're going to give me this stuff the first five minutes I'm here. He says, and that look, my look said it. And he said, no, I'm dead serious. I, I love The Learning Tree and I, I love A Choice of Weapons. Now, which, which one do you want to do first? I said, well, The Learning Tree, of course. That was the first book. He said, well, uh, all right. Who would you like to write the screenplay? I said, I don't know. I've never written a screenplay. 
He said, why don't you write it yourself? You wrote the book. I said, why not? Yeah. Then he said, I hear you're a composer. I said, yeah. Ah. I think you should compose the music. I said, well, why not? <laughs> and he said, now, since you're going to be the first black director in Hollywood, you've got to have some clout. So I think you should produce it for Warner Brothers. I said, oh, why not? <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Well, Kenny Hyman lived up to his word. He put the millions behind the learning tree. And thank God, uh, the learning tree was a success. The Library of Congress now has voted it one of the 25 most important films ever made. And I'm happy about that. They will preserve it forever. I went on to do Shaft and several other films, but nothing was as sacred to me as the learning tree because it was about my mother and, and my life in Kansas. And Kansas and I have finally come together. They have made me the Kansan of the year twice. They forgot they made me Kansan of the year the first time. But that's the way Kansans are, <laughs> you know. But uh, even Mr. Dole likes me. Uh, so <laughs> there are a few stickers there. Well, in any case, that's about as uh, much as I have time to say. Gordon uh, 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 has some questions he wants me to answer. But I want to say to you that I'm happy to be back home. I feel as though at 83, I'm just getting started. I really do. And I feel as though you and you and you and you, you can do anything you want to do if you really try, you know. And I thank you for having me back home. And God bless you. listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. And we have been listening to photographer, author, composer, filmmaker, and director Gordon Parks. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the General Mills Foundation. The ushers will collect questions from the members of the audience, and I will begin with a, a question here. Mr. Parks, would you tell the story about your mother's involvement with the three boys who beat you up when you were 13. Tell us that story. Because I think the story really, as, as I read it, it seemed to me that it was a pivotal story and says a lot about what the values with which you grew up. Well, uh, this was, uh, I was quite young. Uh, three boys uh, got, became incensed because my sisters invited the some boys from the neighboring town over for a church social, church social. And so the local boys didn't like that, so they kidnapped me, who, and I was guarding the ice cream uh, uh, shaker, and uh, they put me on the back of the car, and they beat me up a little bit and threw me off the car. My, and uh, my brothers and them had to haul into court. Well, the judge made a decision to send these boys to jail for a, a month. 
My mother got up in court and said, oh, just a minute, Judge, hold it. I want to make, make this judgment myself. Just, all right, Sarah, go ahead, you know. She said, I want them to go to prayer meeting for a year, every Wednesday. So they did. And Elijah Wells, one of the guys, told me years later, he said, I would have rather gone on to jail, man. <laughs> Your mother made us get on our knees for a year every Wednesday night. A <laughs> uh, question from one of the audience. What is your advice for overcoming the feelings of rejection and, the dis and disparity associated with racism? And how can you turn it into positive fuel to persevere and reach your goals here in Minnesota, especially a non-native of Minnesota? Uh, I've su God knows I've suffered enough racism uh, and enough bigotry and so forth and so on, but I, through the help of my family, uh, who loved me dearly, as I said before, I realized that there's one way to beat, beat it. And then I tell young people, mostly all over the country, who I speak with that, it's no sense in letting a bigot or a racist destroy your life. It's your life. Store all what could be hatred and what could be bitterness and fire. Store it in your heart and use it in your art. That's the way I do. I use it in my music. I pound the piano sometimes when I'm composing. The, the keys flop off the piano. I ruin my writing uh, in the ballet for Martin Luther King. I worked to show the, the violence there and the, the ills of, of our society at that time. And it's just a matter of using that anger and that bitterness to an advantage. Store it all up. Now, I, I, I would tell you that a boy sitting there who's had absolutely nothing but the best of care, riches, and so forth and so on, would not have as much to say about a boy who's sitting there, who's been through the, the hell of discrimination and, and bigotry. He's going to have more uh, of a passion to speak in his music or in his poetry and ever what he's doing. You speak of your art as a means of survival. Human survival involves making choices, often when choices are limited. Can you speak of the specific influences that moved you to make your own choice of weapons for survival? Yeah, well, this is, as I say, recent, just now, uh, I, I know that the important thing is getting a message out to people. There are a lot of people around. If some people say to me, I've had a French television crew recently to ask me, uh, you know, we read three of your books, and you must hate white people. I said, I hate white people. Three quarters of, uh, a quarter of my family is white, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I have no reason to hate white people. When I look back, you think of Ms. Frank Murphy's wife, Madeline. You think of Harvey Goldstein. You think of Alexander Lieberman. You think of Roy Stryker, the FSA, people like that who helped me. It's very be very difficult for me to turn around and hate a, a white face, and I have great grandchildren who are blonde, and uh, 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 I couldn't possibly hate them. 
and, great, and other grandchildren from one half French. One of my daughters was married to a Jewish guy, another one married to a, an Englishman. <laughs> you know, it's a Grand Duke's mixture. And they never have arguments about anything but who spent too much money for this or who was late for this or something of that sort. It's never a racial situation. Here, here's one from an old friend. Gordon, when are you going to pay me back the $5 you borrowed from me in 1943 in Washington, <laughs> D.C.? Would like to see you after your old friend, Lewis. Lewis Moore, Sr. Lewis Moore, Sr. <laughs> Tell him it's on its way. He's here to collect. <laughs> Louis, it's on its way, old boy. I hope it's okay, Lewis, that I read all of that card, but... How are you, Louis? Are you in here? <laughs> here yes, what scared. is your favorite yeah. photograph, the favorite photograph you've ever taken? My favorite photograph, uh, well, I, I suppose that uh, the one that, the photograph that's most best known now and everybody wants is the American Gothic, which I should have probably mentioned, is a black woman, a charwoman holding a mop and a broom. Again, that comes from art. Uh, Grant Wood, when the, if you remember the picture of Grant Wood, the American artist with his wife and standing with a pitchfork. So when I went to Washington the first day I was there, Roy Schreiker gave me an assignment, a strange assignment. Go to Julius Garfinkel's, get yourself a coat, go across the street and get at the restaurant and get a, a bite to eat, and then go to the theater and report to me on the film across the street from, from the restaurant. Well. To make it short, I refused all, all of them. I went back to Stryker, angry, and said, well, you know, he said, you know what happened? I said, yes, I didn't know what happened. He said, well, how do you feel about it? I don't know. Well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. What do I do about it? He said, well, you bring a camera down here for I said, okay. I got the idea. But he said, you must talk to some older black people who've been ex to the experience. And that woman was a charwoman in the building. After Roy Stryker left that night, I, I photographed her. And she said, well, where do you want me to stand? I said, in front of the American flag, which was dripping from the top of the ceiling to the floor. And when Roy saw the picture two days later, he said, well, you're getting the idea, but my God, man, you're going to get us all fired. <laughs> but that has become my most important picture. So and it's my first really professional picture. Very powerful photograph. Uh, there are two, two questions here. That, that are in the same ballpark. Is docu documentary still photography in the U.S. dead? And, and another question, could you comment on the role of today's photojournalist trying to cover wars such as in the Gulf and Panama? Unlike Vietnam and World War II, photographers are banned from these modern day conflicts. Are banned? Are banned, not allowed. Yeah, well, uh we had a, a great champion uh, in, in Henry Lewis, who owned Time and Life magazine. And Look, them two was, was a good magazine. Uh, Henry uh, Lewis uh, believed in photography, believed in photographers. If you needed something, you got it. But today, a photographer is sent out and said, okay, you've got three days to do your story, or if you're a writer and a photographer, uh, maybe a week. I did a story for Life magazine on great American poetry, uh, 
After a year, I brought back 14 35 millimeter transparencies because they allowed me to take my time and do what I wanted to do. When I came in, I handed them 14 transparencies. They said, this is all after a year? I said, you asked me to give you my favorites. Those are my favorites. So that was the kind of consideration. Now, today, certain elements will try to keep the photographer away from showing things that they figure is going to be hurtful to the to the defense or certain to the government, but uh, there are some photographers who have managed to get through and get it, you know. It's a risk-taking thing. A lot of our, my friends have been killed uh, on both Time and Life magazine, and uh, I, like, I hate to see them go, but it's a risky business, and one has to do it to show, show the evil of the world as, as it is. One, one last question from the audience. Do you see the, the real and honest possibility of all races being able to come to fully, fully respect each other and all that that entails, living and working together and so forth? I, I, would, I would like to hope that it will happen someday. Uh, I'm, I, I have to remain an optimist, you know, because I, I think that it will happen. I, I remember most Miss McClintock, who was a white teacher back in Kansas, who used to tell us black kids, we, although we couldn't play football, we couldn't play basketball, we couldn't run track in high school, so forth. She said, I hate to tell you this, but you shouldn't plan on going to college because you're just going to waste your mother's and your father's money because you're going to turn out to be mayors, uh, waiters and poors and maids. Well, so just try to finish high school. Don't worry about going to college. Well, see, I know this may be strange to you to hear someone say this, but this is what we black kids face them. Uh, well, I didn't take Ms. McClinic's advice. I didn't finish high school there. <laughs> but I, when I got my 29th doctorate from Skidmore, <laughs> I dedicated it to her. to show you the difference, when we did the film The Learning Tree, the woman who played the part of Miss McClintock, she was before the camera, and suddenly she burst out crying and said, I can't do it, Gordon, I can't do it. I said, what's, what's wrong? She said, this is an awful role, this is an awful role, this woman telling me. I said, it's just a film, you know. But it showed that it had struck her to the point.